Rock on, everybody. You're listening to the Cosmic Dragon Podcast, and I am Sean Grigsby. Today, we're going to be talking to Mark Barnes. But before we jump into that, hey, want to welcome you to the show, obviously, but want to let you know about a few things. One, if you'd like to advertise on this podcast, uh, you can contact me at seangrigsby at gmail.com. Now, I'm not going to just let anybody selling any doodad on here and have me talk about something that I, A, don't agree with, and B, don't understand. I'd like to believe in the product, or at least think it sounds cool, and think it sounds like something my listeners would be interested in. And if you are interested in advertising on this podcast, well, hell, give me a shout out. Worst thing I could say is no. And uh, also, as of this recording, we got a week left for Hugo nominations. Now, I am up for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. This is my first year of eligibility. And uh, I'd love your nomination if you think I'm worthy of it. There's lots of cool people out there who are also up for the Campbell Award. Uh, one of them is my friend Michael Mamey. Mammy, You know, I forget how to pronounce that correctly. Also, Tracy Townsend is in her second year of eligibility. And I believe Jeanette Ung. I think so. I think she's in her second year as well. Uh, also, this podcast is up for Best Fan Cast. I also wrote an article for Tor.com called A Firefighter's Guide to Fighting Dragons, which a lot of people liked. Hopefully, you, if you've read it, liked it enough to nominate it. And uh, I wrote a short story called Torches and Pitchforks for Sale, but I don't think a lot of people have read it. However, if you want to read that, just hit me up online and I'll send it to you if you're considering it. I think it's a really awesome story as well. That was in a, an anthology called Infinite Dysmorphia. And of course, I'm going to shill some of my books to you right now while we have a second. Uh, Smoke Eaters is about firefighters versus dragons in the future. And that's already out. It's been out for a year as of uh, yesterday. And I also have Daughters of Forgotten Light, which is out as well. That is about all women motorcycle gangs in space. Very grindhouse, very pulpy. Um, but with a lot of heart. Uh, I like to write what I call pulp with a purpose. Now, I'm starting to lean a little less pulpy in my writing, but I still have that underlying vibe. But you know what? Let's figure out uh, what Mark Barnes is all about. Kick it! So you're, you're in Australia. Uh, yes. And uh, I don't believe I've told you this yet, but I lived there for half a year or so. Uh, oh. in, yeah, in Alice Springs. Oh, <laughs> that's uh, that's quite different from Sydney. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's Northern Territory. Uh, it's it's all desert, and they said it was an oasis. It didn't look like much of an oasis to me. Yeah, that's uh, I call bullshit on that. Um, <laughs> it's I mean it's quite lovely, but it's uh, you know it, it is literally the desert. You know it's the the center of the country, you know, there's, it's not uh, a thriving metropolis like you'd find in you know, Sydney or Melbourne or Bris Vegas or any of those places. Right. Um, but I, a lot of people really like it. You know, that's cool. I, I, <laughs> I really didn't get an opportunity to, to visit any other places. We went out in the bush, you know, we did, we did the camping thing, which was compared to camping here in America, uh, even in a state like mine where there's a lot of natural stuff, it's nothing compared 
to Australia, you can actually see all the stars and even some of the planets. Uh, yeah, so yeah. it's pretty cool. Uh, wild well, stallions we, uh, and stuff. The the center, the red center, as it's often called, has the advantage of because it's so sparsely populated. I mean, it's virtually deserted, other than the Koori, like the indigenous, like first people of Australia. So right. it's such a harsh environment. So there's no chance for smog or any of that garbage to get in your way. But right. you, you would never get that experience in the cities. You'd, you'd probably have to drive maybe an hour, hour and a half oh, yeah. out of the cities to get that, which is still not particularly far, but nothing compared to that, you know, the, the completely undisturbed view you get from those kind of places. Right. And Australia has a pretty, de- I'd say more than decent, uh, a very thriving uh, science fiction fantasy speculative fiction community uh they've got galaxy books to where i know that there's one in sydney i forget if that's a, a national chain or not no galaxy is in sydney alone there was minotaur in melbourne i'm not sure that that's still there but it uh i think because we're so far away from everybody we kind of have to take care of ourselves right so for example my books were not in bookstores worldwide which is a bit disappointing it didn't quite go to plan that way but people like Galaxy and Minotaur did stock them, which was really great. And they still do, actually. Galaxy, I know the Galaxy people really well, and I quite often go in there and do random book signings uh, for them. So it's like, you know, whenever they've got book, my books on the shelves, which is most of the time, still selling after, what, five years, which is pretty good. Yeah. They, uh, they're quite happy for me to come in and just randomly sign books for people and sell them as signed author copies. Yeah, and uh, do you know Adrian Collins by any chance? No, the name is familiar, but I don't think we've met. Adrian runs uh, Grimdark Magazine, uh, and he lives in Sydney. But I know that's like saying to someone in New York, hey, do you know so-and-so? They also live in New York City. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, and well, in the Stackfit community, you'd probably you know, there's no bad chance we would either have heard of each other or have met. You know, we, we don't have anywhere near, for example, the conference scene that the U.S. has, like, you know, all the cons and stuff that you guys have, which appear to be, like, almost weekly across the country. Yeah. Here, no, it's nowhere near that. Yeah, we, we might have one, uh, like, a specific festival once a year. Uh, we would generally have a couple of other ones, like Aurealis and the Dipmar Awards, but they're mainly around award ceremonies rather than anything else. But I think we have Conflux. Uh, so, yeah, we might have maybe four. Of those kind of things annually, which is not a great deal. And for the whole country, that's not much. No, not at all. But that said, you know, we're as much as the the land mass is enormous. We're only, I think, twenty four million people and change as a population. Right. So, so you know, we're we're pretty small. Now, it's not obviously in Australia, but it's close. It's closer than the, than the states. Um, are you planning on going to WorldCon uh, in twenty twenty in Dublin? Twenty nineteen is Dublin, but twenty twenty is actually is going to be New Zealand. Um, I, if I've got material, if I've got new material out, yeah, I would. But it's it's just a long, it's a big investment, particularly because I have a, a profession, I've got a career, I run a business, so it's a little bit difficult to justify the time if I'm not out there actually, you know, uh, promoting my own work or or doing something around my career. Right. So, because I, I'm a contractor, so I don't work, I don't get paid. So, you know, it's a, you've got the missed opportunity cost as well. So, 
it's yeah, it's always a big decision to make. Uh, I did go to Worldcon uh, 2013 in Brighton. Oh yeah. Right. I talked there, but I, that was because I also had work that had just come out. I was between book one and book two, I think. So it, I think book two came out shortly after I was there. That was in November. But that said, I mean, the, the environment and the, the, the energy in those places is pretty spectacular. Like, I had a fantastic weekend, uh, met some amazing people. And, you know, getting, seeing sort of some of your writer heroes in there and having them talk to you about your work is, is kind of spectacular. Oh, absolutely. Now, let's talk about your work. Uh, so just to let listeners know, and correct me if I get anything wrong, but you're with 47 North, is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Awesome. So, so for, that, for that series, I'm, I I don't have any other contracts with them. It was just that those three books. The three books with Forty Seven North. Well, tell us about your your career and how you got started in writing professionally, and uh, if you have an agent and what, what's your story. Yeah, I um, I mean, I started writing when I was quite young. I think I wrote my first short story when I was seven, but I didn't really take it particularly seriously. Uh, you know, my parents were always of a a mind that writing and the arts made no money. So, yeah, and they were right. <laughs> right. So it's, uh, I, I, I did, you know, I, was, I, I played instruments and I drew, and I, I mean, I'm quite uh, an artistic as a kid and I still am as an adult. And it was a really role-playing. I, I did a lot of role-playing, you know, D&D, RuneQuest. actually wrote my own system eventually because I was a bit tired of the, the bog-standard stuff. And that's where I really started messing around with story arcs and, and mythic backgrounds and world building. But it wasn't, I went to Clarion South in 2005 and it wasn't until I came out of there that I really decided to take things seriously. Right. So I sold two, two or three stories, I think, the year after, or in that year, so 2005, and then started working on a novel, but then had some personal issues sort of rise and push things back a bit. And then uh, wrote uh, an urban fantasy novel just to sort of clear my throat, so to speak, and then wrote The Garden of Stones in 2010, uh, got John Gerald as my agent in at the end of 2010. And we had a couple of publishers who were, you know, they had a bit of a, a few nibbles at the books, but then eventually it was Dave Pomerico from 47 North who really wanted to champion the series. And we... Uh, John showed him that book, I think, when he was originally at another publisher and they didn't pick it up. But David was quite uh, quite interested. So when he got to 47 North, he gave John a call. And then I think two weeks later, we had a deal. And within about a month of that, we had a deal for the Germans for a non-English translation. But the books came out pretty quickly. The first one, I think when I signed the contract with 47 North in September, Garden of Stones had already been written and it came out in May 2013. But then I had to write uh, The Obsidian Heart and the Pillars of Sand for a release date, it's like six months and then six months while working full time. So it wasn't so much that it was massively challenging, but it certainly didn't leave much for life, I'll put it that way. You know, I was essentially going to work each day, coming home, writing, type playing with my cats, falling asleep. <laughs> that was pretty much it for the next 12 months. Uh, and I've, I've written, I've been continuously writing product, you know, some short stories which get published and some other novels which we've not had pickups yet. But John's got my most recent series, which he's very happy with. And hopefully we'll get a, a bite from publishers on that one pretty soon. 
You know, John Gerald, your agent, is going to think I'm stalking his clients because, <laughs> and I promise I'm not planning this at all, but uh, I interviewed Gareth. Uh, oh, yeah, Gareth Powell, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, actually, Gareth uh, Hanrahan. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, uh, who wrote The Gutter Prayer. That was the last yeah. podcast interview I did. But I swear, John, if you're listening, I, totally, totally random. Uh, that's well, awesome. He, he, John, John will be listening. He's really excited about these, and he's exceedingly supportive. So, uh, yeah, I have no doubt he will hear this. <laughs> he shares all the posts I, I post uh, for his clients when I interview them. So, What, what can you tell us about the Echoes of Empire? Uh, the Garden of Stones is the first book. Uh, but what can you tell us about that, of course, but the entire series? Um, I very stupidly wanted to write something different, and, uh, which is a first effort is probably not necessarily the professionally the wisest course of action. I, I think writing something that has a, a level of familiarity to, to hook your readers and to build your brand and name is probably a safer course if you if you want to have you know a, a, a more chance of success but the garden of stones is uh an orientalist fantasy so it's set predominantly with middle eastern indian and mediterranean influences so it's not the typical european influence story that we get right uh, and i have none of those uh, ancestries in me at all so it was very much a challenge for me to read and learn and i don't take any of their legends it's more around naming conventions and some parts of culture but the, the, the world building in Echoes in the, uh, is pretty much completely original. Uh, so it's also quite feminist. So I have some very powerful, very influential female characters. In fact, I think women and men get as much airtime as each other, which I was quite happy with. And, you know, I, I still get emails from people going, oh, you know, why do you write or how do you write such strong women characters? And I just look at my female friends. You know, they are uh, some amazing, enabled intelligent, incredibly magnificent women with so much agency that I can't help but look around and go, you know, I just write what I know to a degree when it comes to having these powerful women in my life. Uh, but it, it's sort of set in a world where humans are foreigners. So humans actually aren't the sort of center of everything. In fact, the uh, there's only one human character in the main lineup. The rest are actually a hybrid that were artificially created as enforcers and custodians of the peace, who eventually realised that their masters were in, essentially quite corrupt and pointless, and they stepped in to take over. So we've got a human settlement that occurred a couple of thousand years earlier, and the, you know as humans do, we we came in and we got rowdy and decided that we weren't going to play a second fiddle to anybody, but we'd never encountered magic before. And so all of our high science versus all of their high magic, we basically ground each other to a standstill. But the local popular, the, the, the local cultures looked at what humans had, energy weapons and flying ships, and they actually manipulated their arcane science to complement humans in the best possible way, which to rip them off. So we actually have magic-powered flying vessels. They have, um, you know, in some in some degrees, arcane versions of energy weapons, and they've, they've looked at you know they've, they've built you know weapons of mass destruction to a degree as well. They they learned how to do arcane poisoning. So humans came along, and they weren't exactly the greatest influence on the locals. I'll put it that way. But um, yeah, and you know, book one, people have sort of said 
as much as the reviews are still great and it was shortlisted for best debut of the year for the Gemmel Morningstar Award, nice. I think a few people found it a little bit inaccessible, mainly because of its Middle Eastern, Mediterranean and Indian background, like the, the naming conventions, I think some people found a bit of a struggle. Hmm. And it is a complex layered story. I mean, my one of my influences as a kid was Shakespeare. So... Uh, and, you know, Frank Herbert, Gene Wolfe, but, you know, Shakespeare's story structure and that sense of writing tragedy. So it actually has some of those elements to it. And it, it is, with regard to the antagonist, it is quite Macbethian, you know, to a degree. You know, you've got a, an antagonist who's not, at the beginning, um, uh, an evil guy. He's more of an anti-hero. But over time, he gets progressively worse because he believes in self He believes in the prophecies that he was told, and they all become self-fulfilling for him. And he has an exceedingly powerful wife behind him who who pushes him on as well. So it's yeah. I mean, I had a lot of fun. Book one wasn't fun to write, but it was satisfying to write. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I think I was I was so fixated on having structure and understanding exactly what was happening and. Book two, and because I wrote with three point of view characters, you get the readers get this 360 degree view of the story where each character will have commentary and opinion on the other two. So you do get to live in three people's heads as that story builds and, and spirals outward and becomes larger. And then when I read The Obsidian Heart, I thought, shit, that's, that was a lot of work, you know, and, and it, I decided to have more fun, plan less and, you know, go with my intuition a little bit more. And then for The Pillars of Sand, I sort of thought, you know, fuck it. I know, I know where I want the book to end. I know how it starts. I know the middle. So I didn't actually plan it out chapter by chapter. And I had the most fun of writing any of the books of that series. And I've followed that process ever since. The, all the new stuff I write is exactly the same. And it, I think it, I think readers know when we try too hard. You know, and I, I do want to try to give my readers the best experience I possibly can. And that means, I think... I want them to feel that I had fun while I was doing what I was doing and hopefully have that energy come through so that they don't feel the book is heavy or portentous or that kind of stuff. So my new work is would be considered lighter, I think. So what, what can you tell us about your, your writing uh, process? Like, do you write every day? Uh, do, you, do you hit certain goals? How, do, how does, does it work for you? Um, I tend to write when I feel like it. I know that sounds a bit flippant, but basically it's a case of I'm, I'm old enough and I'm self-aware enough to know that if I try to force a session of writing, I'm just going to write crap. And I would rather not waste the time and then go through and waste the time again in editing out all the bad words. You know, I mean, I might bash away at the keyboard and put 8,000 words down, of which I might keep two. So uh, if I'm not feeling, if I'm not inspired, if I'm not, if I'm tired, if I'm frustrated, because again, having a full-time job, you know, I, I don't, writing is not my own, my sole concern. But if I come home and I'm not, I just, I'm not feeling it, I don't do it. And having a couple of days off, I, I got over feeling guilt about that. So I relax, I look at other forms of entertainment, I'll play music, I'll draw, I do a bit, a bit of a photo composition for character portraits and that kind of stuff. I'll hang out with friends, you know, do anything that's not writing based. Right. And then I will find within a day, a day and a bit maybe, when my energy levels are back and I'm a bit more balanced that not only do I want to write, but I need to write. And so I'll sit down and, you know, I don't have a word target. I, I try to finish off logical sections. So, you know, I wouldn't, for example, finish a, a writing session in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a, a scene. 
So I'd, I'd normally finish a scene or a chapter and then put it to bed. And I write from beginning to end. So I don't, you know, I don't tend to write chapter seven, then chapter one, then the end, then go back to act two. And I, I because my work is quite organic, I like to build off what I've written previously. And for me to keep it in my head and to understand how cause A brings about effect B, I, I tend to write the entire, well, I do write the entire book in order. Uh, and I, I, that helps me with character development. It helps me make sure that when characters are growing and their relationships are building, it's all done in a really reliable, pretty sort of pragmatic and consistent way that, that has, a, has a sense of realism. You know, I, I do like to write characters that actually are real people in a fantasy world. So they have kids, they have they've been divorced, they have issues, they're, you know, they, they're alcoholics or they're, you know, they're, they've had shitty upbringings as kids, mainly because and of that, I do like my characters to be hopeful. You know, I've read a fair bit of Grimdark and you know, there's some amazing Grimdark work out there like Joe Abercrombie, Mark Lawrence, uh, you know, George Martin's, with, uh, I think the original books of the first sort of three books in the, in the uh, Song of Ice and Fire, I thought were really great. And then, but you, you need something to compare it to. You can't just immerse yourself in the shadows all the time. You've got no way of then getting that sense of relief. And I was going out, you know, I was even busting out bloody Dragonlance, for Christ's sake, uh, and uh, <laughs> reading like, reading like you know, Anne McCaffrey's Pern books and going back to Michael Moorcock, who was quite dark. But I think the way the Eternal Champion series is written, you don't immerse yourself in that bleakness. You know, even Elric, who's a, an epic bastard, he's not... He's, he's kind of not depressing to read. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, I think for me, it's a case of contrast to, to keep a, a lid on myself and make sure I'm in the right headspace. Well, and I also like contrast as, as far as genre, too, because it, it, mm-hmm. I love science fiction, fantasy, and horror. But I, I also, I'm starting to get into westerns. Of course, I'm writing a oh, space uh. western, so that, that's kind of why. But I also love crime thrillers and nonfiction, and I, and I love throwing it up because... I agree with you. You can get stuck into this, this well, a rut, basically. Mm. Uh, and you need contrast. And I think it makes you a better writer uh, reading. Well, I, ironically, actually, I just finished watching over the weekend. I rewatched Silverado yeah. and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly and High Noon because I, I want, I, I, I'm kind of writing a series of steampunk undead westerns. So ah, okay. That, yeah. That were, that were great research. I love High Noon. I love. Uh, the good, the bad, all, all of the um, Sergio Leone movies. Yeah, yeah. I tried to watch Django, the original Django, and it's a oh. little. It just feels a little too goofy <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I, I, I want to finish it, but uh, obviously, uh, Unforgiven is one of my favorites. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and Tombstone, of course. Tomb, Tombstone's good, but unf- something about Unforgiven I just love. Um, that's awesome. I think the westerns are coming back, and I think speculative fiction writers are starting to kind of take that genre and also, you know, apply it to the speculative side. Which yeah, is awesome. I mean, I think it's a very elegant form of storytelling as well. Yes, and there's a there's a there's a romanticism uh, associated with it, um, and it's just it's something it's just like it's it's just a, something about that story that core thing and, and people much smarter and who've done more theses on <laughs> this subject can say it better than I can but uh, the western is just it's it's still that that narrative is still alive today just in different yeah. forms yeah absolutely I and mean, there's this kind of this brutal honesty to it you know it's 
where you kind of look at the characters and in some cases you're looking at these really uncompromising worlds and characters raised into those worlds who essentially reflect their environment so perfectly and so beautifully. And, you know, even looking at the archetypal, because the characters are quite archetypal, like watching Silverado, A, looking at some of my favourite actors when they were really young, thinking, wow, this is is a long time ago. Uh, But it works, you know, the... They don't need to delve deeply to be over complex. Uh, they don't try too hard, you know. It's which I found I just find a complete joy to 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 watch. You can you can really just let yourself go. Yeah, there's beauty in the simplicity of, mm. of who they are. Uh, I was going to say something, but I, <laughs> I totally <laughs> forgot. Oh no, I know what it was. Uh, have you read Blood Meridian uh, by Cormac McCarthy? By any chance? No, not yet. I tried. Uh, <laughs> granted, I just read the sample to see if I'd like it, but uh, I've heard Cormac McCarthy's writing is very, very difficult, and it's not the kind of thing you can just, you know, relax on the couch and, and zip through. And uh, yeah. they, they, they were right. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's, it's very, it's very thick. Uh, uh, on something, but I can't put my finger on what. But I'm going to try again because I heard it's a great book and, and very brutal, which I always like in a book for some reason. Um, well, weirdly enough, I found that with Pedido Street Station and China Mieville. It took me three attempts. I couldn't get past page 70. Yeah, that but one too. I went, I went and read The Scar and then came back and read Pedido Street Station. I flew through it. So you had to have that primer, I guess. Yeah, I, and I loved the scar, and then I got back and I loved Pedido Street. So I just think I probably wasn't in the right headspace to, <laughs> to be reading Pedido Street. I find I tried reading some of Neil Stevenson's work as well, and while the guy's very talented, I just couldn't I couldn't really get into his work. Uh, although I have three friends who who rave about it, but then again, you know, Stephen Erickson and um, Ian Eslamont's Malazan um, um, uh, books. A lot of people have problems with it. I love those. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's just there's there's something for everybody, and not all of it's going to be for you. Um, yeah, and uh, that's I guess you know in a way I, I get frustrated because sometimes it's hard to find a good book to read, um, but I kind of do like the journey because once you do find something you love, you're like, oh, thank, it's like a breath you could finally breathe. <laughs> like yeah. I, I have this good book now. Uh, speaking of, what what are you reading? What's some uh, some books you want to give a shout out to? Uh, at the moment, I am slowly, too slowly, reading Mark Lawrence's Blood Brothers collection of short stories, which I am enjoying immensely. However, I've just gone back to a full-time contract with my organisational change consulting, and you know the, the hours are very long and the days are quite taxing. So when I come home, uh, reading is not high on my agenda, like passing out, playing with the cats is. But uh, I really enjoy it. And after that, I have got probably about a half a dozen things I've got, I've got to get, but I want to get back into John Gwynn's Malice. I started that. Uh, so I want to, I want to finish that off. I also am thinking of doing some self-indulgent reads of some old, old favorites, like, uh, the Hawkmoon books, the rune star chronicles, of the rune stuff by Michael Moorcock. Um, there's, uh, I finished all of, or most of the Jim butcher, uh, Harry Dresden books. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. So I do like to mix it up a little bit. Um, I will have a, I'm almost due for my reread of Dune for this year and uh, Gene Wall's Books of the New Sun. Cannot recommend Patricia McKillop's Riddle Master books, like so underrated but so entertaining and so so joyous to read. Uh, 
um, with unlikely kinds of heroes as well, which is good. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, work is getting a little bit more stable, thank God. You know, we're out of that project initiation, all hair on fire phase into just completely mental normal days. But it'll it'll be good. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back and reading more frequently, particularly while I'm writing as well, because I am writing more short stories. And I always tend to find, because it's not, they're not really my jam, so... I tend to read short stories to look stylistically at how other authors have done them, and uh, how I would how I would potentially do my own. So, and you know, short stories and novels are a very very different thing to write, uh, very different disciplines. And I have so much respect for those people who can just really write a cracker of a short story. It's, I find it quite difficult. Yes, very much so. It's it's an it's another talent in and of itself outside of just yeah yeah absolutely. Uh, that said, did uh, I did sell my steampunk undead western? I sold that to Dimension Six last year, which was fantastic. I was really proud of that. Cool. And I got I sold them another uh, kind of urban fantasy horror set in the same universe. So it's uh, I, I sort of had this idea for this thing called Sunderland, where. A couple of hundred years ago, uh, this thing called the Court of Keys, which is essentially all the, the, the wizards in the world, did what wizards do. Uh, they didn't read the warning label, essentially completely screwed the earth, destroyed magic. And what they did was they set all these fractures around a continental plate. So you can quite literally walk from your place to hell uh, or to the gates of heaven or to fairy. Wow. Because we, we, we've become this sort of nexus of these portals into different worlds. So the Never Never, which is based on the, the, the Australian poem, um, you know, where the, 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 the dead men lie. Uh, so it's limbo. And uh, so, yeah, I've got a character who is, who is essentially a living person or one of the few living people in limbo and the struggles that she goes through. And the other one is a contemporary story set in Sydney about a, a guy who was an exorcist. Or originally he was a, a crusader who became a priest, who became an exorcist who realized that if he could jam, if he could shoehorn a demonic presence out of a human body, he could shoehorn a human out of a human body. So he's been body jumping for centuries to maintain his own life and eventually got to the point where he realized that that was literally a road to hell. And it's his story of redemption. And he actually has a demon sidekick he met when he was in hell. So that was the, the beta readers love the energy of that story. So there'll be probably more stories of those characters. Nice. Well, hey, we're going to wrap things up, so why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and your books? Okay, my books are sold through Amazon, so it's just um, Amazon.com, Mark T. Barnes. You, you can find them. If you just type in The Garden of Stones, it should give you the entire series. What I recommend, I don't want anyone to waste their time or their money, so I suggest go to Goodreads, have a look at the reviews. If you like what you read, by all means, give them a buy, and I hope you really enjoy them. There's also the magazine Dimension 6, as in just the word and the letter uh, and the number. That is, they do anthologies of short stories, mostly by Australian authors, I'm pretty sure. And it'll have not just my work, but I think there's like 16, 15 editions out. So if anyone likes short stories and wants some good free content they can read, by all means, give those guys a, a, a view because they've got some spectacular Australian writers in there. Awesome. Mark, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, everybody go get his books. And uh, you have a great rest of the day. I'm so <laughs> happy and thankful that you got up early for this show. And we really no, appreciate it. No, my pleasure. You. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much, Sean.